Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a realm where reality intertwines with the inexplicable, where the boundaries of reason dissolve into the shadows of uncertainty. Welcome to the political twilight zone. I am your guide to this enigmatic labyrinth, where politics and power take on life of their own. In this dimension, the threads of truth weave a tapestry of intrigue, challenging our perception of the world we thought we knew. In this world, nothing is as it seems, and the truth lies buried beneath layers of deceit. Prepare to venture where reason meets the unexplained, and where the unexplained might Hi, just everybody. be. everybody. Another week goes by. Oh, my voice broke there a little bit. I thought I was past having my voice changed, but you know what? You're never too late, I suppose. Anyway, welcome back. Hope you guys had a great Fourth of July, and uh, I, better, I didn't arrive by chopper this time. Uh, I've been driving a lot on the uh, byways and highways of America, so I'm at a, another studio, a remote location, and uh, I'm hoping that it sounds okay. There's a little more background noise here, but uh, mainly it's people who decide that they need to take the mufflers off their cars. It seems to penetrate everything. Anyway, since we're back, I thought I'd just wish you all a uh, happy birthday from America, even though it's a little belated, and uh, tell you how happy I am that we're all still here after all, right? And uh, make a couple of announcements, too. By the way, this is Rick Wagner here at KNZZ KGLN. We are all over Western Slope and Eastern Western Slope, Colorado. And Eastern Utah, or of course, on the Internet, where we have quite a number of listeners, which I really appreciate. And uh, you can listen to this as a podcast as well, which you can get pretty much where you get into your podcasts. Or you can go to my homepage, therickwagnershow.com, and uh, you could listen to them directly from there. You can also listen to Victor Davis Hansen's uh, three weekly. They rotate. He does a two or three a week, um, his podcast. Uh, you can just listen to that there as well. And you can uh, catch all the stories and so forth. But also what I wanted to mention was on our uh, web page, uh, that particular show page, I've been writing a little bit. Uh, some of you have mentioned, and some of you know, that for a number of years I wrote for our local newspaper here. I had a weekly column, which enraged and uh, bothered uh, the 30% of the liberals. <laughs> I can't even say it. The liberals in my area. And... I just, uh, you know, I guess almost two years ago now, I just decided that it uh, wasn't a good fit, that um, I couldn't compromise what I wanted to write, and, uh, you know, it was no, it was, it was not a bad thing. I just uh, wanted to do something else. I wanted to spend more time on the radio and do something else, and I always wanted to get back to the writing, and some people were asking me about it, and, and so they were nice enough to say they'd like to see something again. So I've been putting a few little informational things up on the webpage, or it's something about socialism and American traditions going all the way back to the Romans and, you know, not real long. It's kind of the limitation on the web page is that you can't really make things too long because I only write in the middle and I don't want to make it, you know, so you have to scroll down a bunch to get to the rest of the news stories. So uh, what I'm thinking about doing is continue to write a little thing, just try to keep it around 200 words, 220 words. And if I want to go longer, I'm going to get another page uh, separate with a link on it and if I write something longer, when you get to the bottom, if you're still interested, you just click on it. You can go read the rest of it. And I'll try and put something interesting up all the time or something thoughtful anyway. I don't pretend to have any of the answers or certainly not all of the answers. Uh, now, you know, when I quit writing the newspaper, it was because I'm always right and they were always wrong. <laughs> but, you know, that might just be in my head. But so we'll, we'll try and come up with a few things. I've been really gratified with the people who have read what we decided to start putting up in the last couple of weeks and I uh, appreciate your comments on them, and we'll try and be a little more uh, on point on some of these things. I have a lot of ideas. I think some of them are good. And you know what I'm trying to do really is synthesize some things, because what we try and do on the show is take history and 
kind of uh, a little bit of science sprinkling around there, but but history and politics and culture and sort of stir them together. And I think people don't give enough attention to the historical perspective sometimes because it gives you the long view on things. Oh, and by the way, I appreciate people commenting on uh, my book suggestions from the last time where I suggested uh, folks read uh, First Salute by Barbara Tuckman about uh, Revolutionary America, which is really a good book. And then another one about the 14th century in Europe where everything was sort of coming into focus to you know, that we can kind of see now with nation states and so forth by the same author, Barbara Tuckman. And they're, they're just fantastic books. But First Salute is really something you ought to read because that, that whole section about uh, the Dutch and all the trade that was going on and them being the first people to recognize one of our ships as uh, being a sovereign nation, none of that I'd heard before, and it was really interesting. So uh, take, a, take a look at that. Anyway, so that's where we're standing on that. And I also, since we were since we were talking, I could not help but think of talking. And when I think of talking, I of course think of really the maybe the greatest talker. Now, a lot of you are going to think, well, "What about Joe Biden? He's he's an amazing talker." Well, that's true, but I don't think anybody can outdo our our president, our vice president. Right now, I don't have the sound clip, but I think just reading it. <laughs> uh, she was on this uh, very left left wing uh, appearance. And uh, the Essence Festival of Culture in New Orleans at the very end of June, just before uh, the July holiday. And she was asked about culture. And uh, she says, what are some of your ideas to how we can get culture going? How important do you think culture is in particular to help us do that? Now, this is something you're just not going to hear every place else. So you guys need to cock and hear to this thing because, you know, this is the kind of, uh, you know, this is, this is ambrosia to the ear. This is what the vice president said. Well, I think culture is, it is a reflection of our moment in our time, right? And present culture is the way we express how we're feeling about the moment. And, and we should always find times to express how we feel about the moment. That is a reflection of joy because every, you know, it comes in the morning. We have to find ways to also express the way we feel about the moment in terms of just having language and a connection to how people are experiencing life. And I think about it in that way too. Okay. This person is just a heartbeat or, a, you know, a loose uh, shoelace away from <laughs> the presidency. She is functionally inarticulate. And Joe Biden is inarticulate, but in a very, a very different way. And I have to say, I, I thought about the old Joe Biden. You know, there was a, a writer, uh, Art Buckwald, that used to write in the late 60s and 70s. And I went back and read some of his stuff years ago in political science. And he was a great writer. I think he was kind of a yeah, a little of the old-time liberal, but uh, not the classical liberal. But he was very good. And he, he wrote a lot of stuff <laughs> about Nixon. And a lot of it was about the old Nixon and the new Nixon. Because Nixon had changed his position on things from time to time. And so he would always have the new Nixon running into the old Nixon, like he opened a closet door and there was the old Nixon and they would have this discussion. It was pretty humorous. And Joe Biden, I thought, well, what about Joe? I mean, is is there an old Joe and a new Joe? I mean, and then, no, there's not. There's just an older Joe and then a younger version of the older Joe. And if you go back and listen to some of the, the things, and you can find them on the Internet. The Clarence Thomas hearings are a great example because you know Joe was in real trouble with the Clarence Thomas hearings. He was the chair of the Judiciary Committee 
once again, a job you get by just being in the Senate long enough, you get these chairmanships. And he had tried to run for president, and he had been very unsuccessful. And he had got bounced out of the race because of his crazy misappropriation of other people's speeches and his discussions about his past, all of which were untrue. So these embellishments and things had, at that time, got him bounced out because the press, while still lefty, would still report some of these things. And so what was happening was he was trying to redeem himself with the party because he wasn't sure what was going to happen. They didn't like him running and kind of making a fool out of himself. Now he makes a fool out of himself, but people cover for him, or they don't care, I guess. And so if you listen to him, you realize this is this is uh, Biden at his, uh, you know, at, at his nastiest. And I was listening to uh, Douglas Murray talking about this, and it really made me think about it. And so I went back and looked a little bit, or I had looked at some of it. And what you'll see is him just chattering on. He's much quicker in his speech. He's just as mean, and he also just makes stuff up as he goes along. You know, throughout this time, even though he'd gotten in trouble for this, his ability to sort of bounce around on topics, and you really see how he is now. It's just a slower version of it, and it was, it's pretty interesting to watch. And you wonder, who can possibly run someone like this for president? Who, in a Democrat party, wants him to be in charge of everything? Well, the people who really want to run something. People that are too lefty, like Ron Klein, who's, you know, I think is chief of staff, people like that, who really want to run things. But there's no way on the planet they can get elected because they just can't pretend to be someone else. They're essentially like AOC and those people, a little more sophisticated. And so they need someone to be a stand-in. And so Joe was a perfect stand-in. I'm not telling you guys anything you didn't want to know. So when you see this, you realize, gosh, this guy can't make it through the next election. So what's going to happen? I mean, you go back and you look and you can see that this deterioration It's the same guy, but he's just downhill so far. Uh, same. Oh, inappropriate. yeah. That's actual music. I'm sorry. I like a lot of the new stuff, too, but uh, there's nothing really like uh, people who can actually sing. You know. Also, I think that should be the actual uh, opening invocation uh, for Congress. Uh, they should just play that before every Congress to remind them kind of what apparently they've decided their job is. Anyway, we're back. It's Rick Wagner here, getting it right here on KNZZ, KGLN, and I am the remote studio. And I, these guys outside uh, are driving back and forth uh, in very loud motorcycles, and I just don't know what I'm going to do to get them to stop. Uh, nothing. That's apparently what I'm going to do. I don't know what's wrong with people. They're doing it in an area here where there isn't any police, I'm sure. That's why they're doing it, and they're racing and so forth. So, eh, well, I guess to each their own, but I apologize for that. Anyway, we're back here on 1100 uh, KNZZ and uh, 980 KGLN. And I was thinking what we were talking about the last segment with uh, Joe being the, uh, that's Joe Biden, President Joe Biden, pardon me, when he was head of the Judiciary Committee. And that made me think about this crime problem we have in America that I wanted to talk about. Because it's people like Joe and Kamala and Schumer and the rest of the uh, octogenarians in Congress. And I don't say that in a harsh way about octogenarians because I know a couple of people that are in their early 80s and uh, the same age as Joe. And, well, first of all, to be fair to Joe, their IQ was probably about 40 points higher than his was. Uh, so really, he's just, you know, manifesting kind of what he's always been by talking a little slower and people not being able to stop him as much. But there's just nothing new that comes out of these folks. And 
They're so cut off from reality. They're so cut off from what the average person does every day that's become dangerous to the country. These people have no connection with the United States that most of us understand. Many of them in Congress don't actually live in the states that they represent. Many of them have the situation. You know, in England, they have what they call the rotten boroughs, where uh, there's a whole problem with voting, and there's a there's a uh, someone going to Parliament from them, but uh, they're it's safe because there's you know not people in them or something wrong with the voting rolls. I mean, there's a lot of things going on, and for some reason, we have some places like this that no matter who you are, if you're the right political party, mainly Democrat, uh, you just get to stay there forever. I mean, we look at Nancy Pelosi, her essentially the center part of uh, San Francisco, and out from that a little bit into Contra Costa, I think. I mean, I'd have to look at the map again. And well, look, I mean, we have Fetterman, <laughs> who, from the, you know, from, who was elected in Pennsylvania just recently. So they don't know what's going on, and they don't care. And I've talked to people who have lived in D.C. area for a long time, and they'll tell you that you know the, a lot of the politicians just live there. And they go back and visit their home state once in a while so they can say they were there. But for the most part, they're from Washington, D.C. I mean, Al Gore, when he was running for president, uh, wasn't a resident of Tennessee where he had been a senator. He hadn't spent significant time in Tennessee in a long time, I don't think. And his kids went to school in the D.C. area. And uh, they weren't Tennesseans. Of course, he became a Tennessean every six years, uh, you know, very quickly, of course. But this all leads to this terrible disconnect we have with how regular people live. And crime is such a, such a great example of that. Because if you're rich enough and can afford to live places, have security, have all of these kinds of things, you don't see what's going on. You just roll the window up on the car and have somebody drive you someplace else. Or you just get behind the wall to state and that's the end of that. Or you just stay someplace uh, near Washington where there's just layer after layer of police and protective services that we pay for. So the idea that you really understand what goes on with crime when you live like that is next to impossible to support. And so I was thinking about it and I was, I was working on writing a little something. And I think I might just discuss it here because, you know, it's about this rise in crime because I think it really, I think it really threatens civilization in general. And I was thinking about, you know, the Roman Empire. You know, I talk about that a lot because we get so much from it. They really had a hard problem with that in the twilight of the years, if you want to call it, because crime had gotten even worse. I mean, crime in the city of Rome was pretty bad throughout the city. I mean, we didn't really have what we thought of as a police force. They had uh, sort of the civilian legion kind of people, uh, you know, the civilian cohort and uh, the civilist cohort is what you would call it. And they were sort of in charge of keeping order. But they, you know, it was a pretty uh, random thing. And they, you know, it wasn't like they had patrol cars they were driving around. And there were parts of Rome that you just didn't go into at night if you had a, had a brain in your head because you would probably come out without that brain being in your head anymore. Nevertheless, the, the society was relatively orderly in other areas, and it became more and more disjointed towards the end. And people became so worried about their own safety that uh, they no longer paid nearly as much attention to what was going on at their borders and what was going on in the rest of society, which just makes sense. When you don't feel like you can walk out your door and get a loaf of bread someplace and get home without being robbed or who knows what, just a random crime now. 
for seeing so many mentally ill people out there just attacking folks. And I think there's a, a another problem with it. I think this intense tribalism that the Democrats have been working on for so long has made people actually believe what some of them say, what the Democrats say that, you know, it's not that, oh, we disagree on politics. They want some of these groups that they're trying to weld into a voting block with them to believe that Republicans and regular people are not just against them, but are violently against them and want them gone. And, you know, it's heightened this, this fear. And you get some people that are a little unstable on the edges of that anyway, and you get some of these crazy attacks in the cities, especially when they see that there's no consequences to it. And it just escalates. And it, it can threaten the very fabric of civilization because without that public safety, you can't get much done. And the other, other one I was thinking of, and you've heard this before, but you know the Weimar Republic in late 20s and into the 30s in Germany was wildly decadent. It was also fairly creative, but it was wildly decadent, and there was a, a whole lot of crime that was also going on that they weren't able to control. Because society just felt like it was falling apart. Part of that was because they had this hyperinflation uh, and political instability because everybody was complaining about it, and they felt like the nation was going in a completely wrong direction. Two or three political parties were trying to rise, and of course, you know, one of them was. And uh, people were so upset about their lack of public safety, and of course, their money wasn't worth anything. And we, we know what that sort of feels like, both those things, that they were willing to accept really what became totalitarianism just so they could feel safe. And that kind of choice can be made so much simpler or easier if there's all of this disorder going on. People's own safety it becomes paramount. And other issues that might go along with someone that offers their safety them safety sometimes gets overlooked. And that's one of the ways you get this totalitarianism, right, if you're not careful. Because it's a deterioration, people feel like, not only of what's happening now, but they see that if it keeps going on, that the, that everything will fall apart. So people become desperate. It's natural. You become desperate to try and make sure that your whole civilization doesn't collapse, and you turn it over to someone that has an answer. Now, usually those people don't have very good answers. There are people with good answers out there, but when you're panicky, People don't make good choices, either as individuals, or they certainly don't make them as groups. So the whole purpose of prevention of crime is to keep the population becoming a panic mob because you don't know what happens when that goes on. And you have to keep after that because there are people out there in the society that are always going to be criminals. And when the deterrence slips away, they do what? Well, they accelerate their criminality, don't they? And so they're out there. And that, that fosters a further feeling of disorder. So people that are a little bit down the ladder from the uh, sort of psychopath there, or sociopaths, begin to think that it's okay too. And so you get this sort of uh, cascading effect of criminality. So you can't let it get that far. And we, that's what's happening here. And I don't know what's going to happen with some of these cities. Sometimes it feels like you've sort of a fail-safe point where you don't know if they're going to be able to pull themselves back to the brink. Now, I think the way New York was in the 80s, any of the old movies you look at from the 70s, especially that show sort of New York and Times Square and this this crazy, you know, uh, adult theaters, drunken behavior, it was not a place you wanted to be. It's headed that way now 
a little different, but for some of the same feelings of unsafe behavior going around you all the time. Now, what I've heard from people who've been in New York recently is the whole town smells like marijuana, which is always encouraging because we know how helpful marijuana is to people doing their job tasks. And, of course, it really assists people in driving and heavy traffic and things like that because we all know that uh, it doesn't affect you in any way in terms of your judgment or reaction time or anything. But when you take that and you just screw that together with no deterrence, very the small police force, considering what they were two years ago, they're having trouble getting anybody out there, and they're starting to put people in the police force. I wonder if really ought to be in the police force because they can't get anybody else. They're going to have a self-fulfilling prophecy about that if they're not careful of bad cops. And the ones that are good don't want to do anything because they just get in trouble. So there's this cascade, and it makes you it makes you think, well, what can happen? But I do think that's why I referenced the late 70s, early 80s, that you can come back from that if you have someone strong enough and the people uh, have enough confidence and you hope that it's someone like a Rudy Giuliani because people get so upset they're really looking for it. And how does Rudy Giuliani, who's a Republican, get elected in New York City? Hey, everybody, we're back. Yes, indeed, we are. I appreciate your sticking on uh, everything with us here today. I have to say, I don't think I've done as good a job as I would have liked today, especially the first segment I... You know, many times you don't have enough to talk about. Now, that's not the case on this show because, unfortunately, we have far too many things to talk about. Sometimes you just have so much, you're a little overprepared, and then I I just feel like I get to rambling. And uh, I really appreciate you guys sticking with me. You guys have been good to me for so long. It's uh, it's really gratifying. I really appreciate it. Stood by my uh, technical errors, uh, my, uh, you know, clumsy syntax from time to time, and... uh, I appreciate it. So I, I try and spend some time coming up with some stuff for uh, for you to just to think about. And I hope that that's what we do here. And I'm Rick Wagner here in Kansas City, KGLN. Uh, we are happy to have you back. And since we're talking about crime today, uh, I thought we'd talk about, of course, what everybody else is talking about, which is the cocaine found in the White House. It's uh, an unraveling story, as they say. First, it was found somewhere on the White House grounds, which, of course, includes pretty much everywhere. And then it was found uh, within the White House, and on Friday it was found in a more secure location near the entrance to the West Wing, where all of the presidential uh, activity takes place. And it's a very secure area. And this was, of course, uh, according to MSNBC, of all people. And so it just becomes a more and more interesting story, partly because the White House makes it a more interesting story by clamming up about it. They said that they couldn't talk about the story because of the Hatch Act. <laughs> that was Karine Jean-Pierre. Now, the Hatch Act, as you know, is something that they regularly ignore, which is a federal rule that's supposed to keep federal employees from actively campaigning uh, for a uh, political party or person. And Karine Jean-Pierre, regularly uh, now anyway, has been... Uh, bring that up from the podium about any questions, of course, about Hunter and things like that. Although she has uh, continuously referred to Trump Party and uh, most conservative Republicans as MAGA, which, of course, is a campaign slogan from one side and used negatively by the other. Uh, So that seems to be like a little bit of campaigning and people brought that up. But, of course, it's been roundly ignored. Uh, I found that the uh, the tactic of the left is as much to ignore as it is to shade or twist. Uh, it's proven to be much more effective than I would have thought. Um, they're perhaps more clever 
than we think. They are, in fact, the imps of Satan. Now, that's... Uh, I get a context. I'm joking. I haven't seen how large they are. I don't know if they're imps or not. But anyway, um, so uh, that's an interesting story. And we'll see where that goes. It's going to die. Don't you worry. It's, it's, it's getting memory hold as fast as they can. The problem is that it, it, things just keep leaking out. You know, it's sort of like a... Uh, a water balloon with little tiny holes in it. I mean, they, they keep trying to hide it places, but the water keeps running out of it. And people keep, oh, here's another little little leakage. Now, that may be on purpose. That may be because it's a fairly large story, and they think by just constantly leaking little bits and pieces of it that it will just sort of, you know, drift away, that it's better than hitting with a big bombshell, like they have a photograph of somebody, you know, using a credit card to do cocaine off of outside the West Wing or something. but Because uh, that would raise, it's not just a Hunter Biden issue, which of course is the big problem for them, because Hunter has been everywhere with uh, Uncle Joe of late. Now, uh, what I've read on that is that his advisors have said, you know, it doesn't look good to be taking Hunter everywhere with you, you know, to state dinners, flying everywhere, this and that, that it is something that gives people some ammunition about who, who is this guy and why are we paying to him to cart him all over the world? And especially when he's on record as being in some shady places at shady times, writing Air Force Two when his father was vice president. And what's going on now with him? But apparently, and this is all you know from unidentified sources, that the president is believes, because I think believes, that Hunter is uh, you know, in remission on his addictions. And that if he lets him just be out on his own all the time, he'll just fall back into it. Now, that's not a bad approach, really, with addicts, that they usually for quite some time after they're trying to get clean, that if they're left on their own, it's difficult because they don't know what to do with themselves. Remember, and we've mentioned this before, addiction, like alcoholism, and even people who are heavy cigarette smokers, if you take that out of their lives... And then you try and realize how many hours or what percentage of their waking hours are spent with that addiction. You know, you're either, you're either uh, intoxicated in some way or you're trying to get intoxicated. Uh, you're trying to get money to be able to afford to get intoxicated. Now, you know, maybe you steal it. Maybe you're cutting deals with somebody else. We won't say where um, if, you're, if you're a hunter. But, you know, there's a tremendous amount of time that goes into that addiction. And if you just pull that out, it's difficult to maintain because now what do you do with yourself? You get a hobby, I suppose. This is why many people who have addictive personalities and recognize that uh, will adopt something else. They'll find a hobby that they like, and uh, maybe it's fitness, maybe it's hiking, maybe it, you know something that they can really pour themselves into and substitute one addiction in its essence for another, maybe a more healthy one. And so you want to keep Hunter around. Now, does that mean there may be accidents when you keep them around? You know, people relapse. And if you have access to the White House and you're practically living there and you relapse, it makes people wonder if, you know, found drug paraphernalia or things that you've been known to use in the past show up in the White House if maybe it had something to do with it. But we don't know that. Uh, but it's it's a difficult aspersion for them to get around. Or it is somebody that works in the White House or had access to the White House, thought it would be cool to tell people that they did drugs there. We've actually heard 
some celebrities and so forth in the past years ago said, oh, I smoked marijuana in the White House at a visit and, you know, like that, <laughs> that kind of thing. Uh, you know, yeah, real classy. Thanks a lot. And so is that going on? We don't know. But it's an interesting story. And the way they're handling it makes you more and more suspicious about it. And I can't tell if it's because they're just trying to avoid the, aspira- the, the aspirations, <laughs> the implications of it, uh, or how it appears, what they like to call now the optics. Remember what it used to be? It appears to be bad. Now it's the optics. You know, optics as a definitional word has to, as many, many readings, but, you know, it usually has something to do with actual glass or uh, perhaps examination of the eyes. And it doesn't necessarily have to do with how things look directly. But it's a cool word, and like many of those cool words that I, I tend to loathe after a while in their usage, that's one. So they would say the optics of it is not good, whether it's true about Hunter or not. And also, I heard a comment about Hunter, and they were talking about you know Joe being involved, I think this was on Fox, Joe being involved in his son's business deals, you know, when he was vice president, perhaps president, we don't even know if, what's going on, but, or if anything, I think we have some pretty good ideas. But I was thinking about that, and see, that's, that's not exactly right. Hunter's business deals. No, Hunter doesn't have business deals. His father is his business. That's his business. If it weren't for Joe and what he does... Hunter doesn't have any business. (laughs) He doesn't have any connection to Burisma in Ukraine or the Chinese or, you know, what are his business? His his business, what he brings, his business to match up with their business, is his father. I mean, that's what we're hearing. I mean, we have yet to see it proven, although it feels like it, but let's let's give them the, the sliver of a doubt. But if any of this is true, Hunter's business is his father. He is the chief operating officer of uh, Joe Biden Incorporated, apparently, and that's what he brings to the table. Now, we have to wait and see if there's more proof about that, and the Republicans are certainly trying to bring that on. I think, and I've heard someone else reference this because I thought it was very true, we'll know if the Democrats are going to try and get rid of our friend Joe before the next election, if they think that they have someone else lined up and they want to get rid of him, not by more and more attacks in the media. Those will escalate a little bit if that happens. And they've already have some. They've, the mainstream media has paid a little more attention to some of these stories, and that's not good for Joe. And it appears to me that they would like him to ease out of the way. But if they really want him to do so, I think the first thing we'll see, and as I said, there's others out there that I heard this from, and I agree, is we'll not see them coming after him in the media. We'll see them withdrawing some of the roadblocks they try and throw up to the Republicans investigating this. They won't do anything overt. They will simply start standing aside in Congress, letting the investigations go forward without all of the procedural roadblocks and things that they've been doing now. They'll just start withdrawing that stuff. And you won't see as many sort of uh, what we what we call surrogates out there from Congress defending him as much. It'll change a little bit. But procedurally is where we'll start seeing it. 
they won't be in the way of the republics as much. They'll start letting them have their way a little bit. And then if they really do want to get rid of Joe, they can simply say, look what's going on. I think you know, there's, there's a train coming down the tunnel, and we, we see the light, and it may not stop. So maybe you want to think about withdrawing yourself, you know, and letting someone else have a shot, someone who doesn't lose every battle with the teleprompter that they get into. You had another one on Thursday where it was just, woof. Anyway, their real problem, though, is that the number two, they want Kamala as the candidate less than they want Joe. So how do you hopscotch that? Well, they have no bench. They don't have a number of other people to choose from. They only have a couple. Newsom seems to be the one rising. He has the hair. He's reasonably articulate. He's not real smart, but he can memorize some lines and talk about things. I think they'd much rather have him as a candidate, depending on who the Republican nominee is, but it, you know, right now it looks like it be Trump. But they don't know how to get to him or even to someone else if there's another person working out there. They can, they can get Joe out of the way, but then everyone's going to expect Kamala to be the nominee. Well, not everyone, but many people will expect. She's the vice president. I mean, she's supposed to be kind of the chosen person. And they block themselves in by becoming a party obsessed with race, gender, uh, whatever else you want to call some of the trans movement, all these types of things. And so they, they stuck her in there because Joe's advisors had said he needed to name somebody, and so he named a person who we didn't know who it was at the time. You know, he wanted to have a black woman nominee, and then they looked around. There's been plenty of black women politicians that have been pretty effective, uh, many of them very liberal, but they were effective, and, and they could be, communicate and all that good stuff. It just happened to be anybody on the scene that fit the bill right now except Kamala was the most obvious, not the best that you could that you could find, but the most obvious that you could find right now. So they got stuck with her. And she became even worse than they imagined. She is less liked than Joe. And practically any Republican nominee that we would think of as being viable could probably beat her. I mean, that's what they think anyway. So how do you hopscotch over her if you try and slide Joe out the door? They're trying to do that. They don't know exactly how. One of the things that got floated, and thank the Lord this isn't a possibility right now, was to try and get one of the liberal justices on the Supreme Court to retire and then put Kamala there. I know. Let that soak in for a minute. You imagine what those opinions would look like. Well, no, they wouldn't be true. They shouldn't write the opinions. You'd have clerks do it. But uh, unfortunately, a lot of the liberals on there haven't been there very long. You have, of course, Sotomayor. Uh, you have uh, Kagan. You have Katanji Brown-Jackson. Uh, so, you know, in it, it, that this is probably not going to happen. So they're a little bit of a loss how to, uh, you know, ease her out of the way and get to someone else. Because this is still, and I've mentioned this before, this is still an outgrowth of the Clintons. Because for years, the Clintons chopped the head off of anybody that was climbing up the ladder in the Democrat Party who might be a threat to Hillary. And so it left this gap. And this is how we ended up with Joe, because 
they saw who was available in the 2020 election, right? So, and they saw who was out there, and they realized that really none of these third-tier Democrats could win. Joe, on the other hand, had been around. They could shape him pretty much in that they wanted to. He was desperate to be president in any possible way, while he was even so cognizant that that was going to happen. Jill, of course, apparently wanted it because she seems to be stepping up to try and fill the Edith Wilson role of uh, interpreting her husband's thoughts, um, just like uh, Edith did with uh, President Wilson when he became incapacitated. And so they used him, and they were lucky to use him, that he is very malleable and will pretty much say anything they, they want. And right now, it's, we're not entirely certain that he knows what he's saying or the implications of it, but... Now, what do you do? I mean, if you drop down from Joe, and even if you try and hopscotch Kamala, you drop down a a couple of levels. Not just one, but a couple of levels. Newsom's even down there. I mean, he's the governor of California. He's got a lot of problems. He is not someone you would love to have. And you don't need California. Remember, it would be nice to have somebody from a state that you help you in the Electoral College, even though they keep trying to get rid of it. California is going to go your way anyway. So Gavin doesn't bring much to the table. Now, he might bring a vice president that does. Uh, I think Amy Klobuchar is still you know, sticking her head above ground. She would be a choice that might help him a little bit. But still, you've got to drop down. There's just not a, a, a level in there. And that's because the only people that Clinton's allowed to exist were people too far along in their careers to really be much of a threat to her. I don't think she ever thought that, that, that Joe Biden would be president. I mean, it was a wild set of circumstances brought that about with COVID, uh, the craziness that was going on with election laws. I don't think she ever thought that, or, you know, they would have gotten rid of Joe, too, uh, by just, you know, citing him out of the way, uh, sending him off someplace or you know, letting, letting him talk, really, and, and highlighting him with his speeches, and that would have sunk him again, probably. But once he was the nominee, the media was on his side, and whatever he said was just laughed off or put to one side. So this is where they're at. Uh, they uh, they dropped down, even if they managed to some, have some reason or some place to put Kamala uh, so that they don't have her as a nominee, they dropped down pretty far in terms of people that are going to have any kind of national following. I mean... Look, look at what they have. I mean, Nancy Pelosi, 82, about to be 83, has been uh, functionally off her rocker for probably four or five years. I mean, she was not a nice person for a long time, but now, I mean, she's just it's just gibberish when you listen to her. Um, just things like randomly put together. I mean, it's not as bad as Joe, but there's a lot of that going on out there. And um, so once you see that, and you, then you see, you know, Chuck Schumer is never going to be well I don't know what people are doing there but uh, some sort of outside thing <laughs> this this studio is actually pretty good except for the fact that there's some things that are far too close to it that uh, are noisy but so I apologize for that but anyway uh, what do you what do you do then right I mean who's who, who do you go to Nobody's managed to get a national following. And Newsom's known, but it's you know if you're actually a level-headed Democrat, yeah, what's he known for? So 
I think that's going to be a real interesting situation because what he's being known for is a crime-ridden, deteriorating state, no matter how he tries to spin it. And like we've talked about in the first part of the show, crime is a big problem because it's really on people's minds. Now, if, if you look across the world, I think we can see some things that might be coming our way. Uh, if you look at France, France is is a disaster right now. And it's mostly the migrant population around Paris that we've talked about before that have, you know, are rootless, uh, have not integrated in the slightest bit. And it's become apparent to them that they can pretty much run things through uh, violent demonstrations. You know, France has a history of everybody taking to the streets and turning over the barricades whenever something comes up they don't like anyway. So this plays into their hands. There's a lot more violent uh, than they have been. And all of Europe is having this problem, and many of it with the migrant populations they've let in there. People have not integrated. They didn't come to these uh, European nations because they thought, oh, I've always wanted to be a Swedish person. No, they've come there because they can live very well compared to where they were living before, uh, and many of them don't have to you know, have much of an occupation, if any. Uh, these societies are very socialist, and they have a huge safety net. So a lot of the migrants come there and just hurl themselves into the safety net and then start working to you know, take control because they see they can't. Because what's happening in, their, in that country is that many of them had a reasonably homogenous population. Certainly Sweden, which is a good example, had a pretty homogenous population, and they've exploded in crime up there. I mean, they've had violent crime go up, I think, like 10 times what it was before. Uh, they have uh, all of these Norwegians up there. I mean, Norwegians, I'm sorry. No, Norway's actually kept a lot of people out. They've been doing much better than Sweden. But they have, like, uh, gangs. These gangs have taken over, not only in Sweden, but they're also prevalent in France. And they are gangs of immigrants who speak the same language, same cultures. One of them up in Sweden, I read it, was called the Kurdish Fox, which I thought was interesting. The Kurdish Fox wasn't even born uh, uh, in Kurd, you know, where the Kurdish are, uh, outside of Turkey. Uh, he was he was born in Sweden, but he's still the Kurdish fox, and he's one of the gang leaders. They've had a lot of trouble in their schools, partly because the Swedes have been very, very light on punishing youths under 21. And if you murder someone under 21, you're very likely to not do any more than four years in uh, a penitentiary there. And the children's prison, I'm gonna, if I call it that, uh, are very low security. Apparently they can check themselves out for dental appointments and stuff like that. And so the deterrence there, as we talked about earlier in the show, very, very low. And I read a, a good article in The Spectator about this, uh, that one of the things that some of the Swedish teachers have heard from some of these kids is, uh, and I can't say the Swedish version of it, but it means I can do four years, which they all understand to mean that, you know, if they beat them and they happen to beat them to death, that they can do four years in one of these institutions and be out again, which is a pretty chilling thing to say to someone. So you see how this breakdown in, in people who are being absorbed in the society takes place. Uh, and then they realize they're outside society, but they have a lot of power because of their number and kind of the way things are and with lack of deterrence. All those things come together, and why don't we take over? Or why don't we become a major force in saying what happens in the